For me, it's all about positioning. I don't like to call call because when I call call somebody, I'm, I come across as the person who needs something and I don't like to be in this position. So there's a lot of psychology. So what I do, I usually go to open houses. We just went to a fixer upper lead that was on the market. So the goal was to not to get the property. It was to get to know the agent and tell them what we do and to invite them to our project to see what we do, position ourselves as the expert. And that's exactly what we did. The agent reached out to us, we reached out to them. And now when they come to our project, we are now positioned as the expert. We are the real deal. We are the developers. They can come and see that we are actual players. We tell them what we do, we tell them what we need, and we see if they can go to work and prove their self to be able to work with us. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. And I can't believe it, but we're at episode number 100. Today, we have a very special guest, Haim Maman. Haim used to run a large virtual wholesaling business but pivoted to investing in the Bay Area when he realized that by investing here, he could make more spread with less overhead. In this episode, Haim will share his techniques to doing massive deals in the Bay Area and how he positions himself as an expert to get a consistent stream of deal flow. If you want to be a successful investor in the Bay Area, you should listen to this episode twice. And if you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to the show and leave a review. We release episodes every Wednesday and Sunday and release the show notes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. And be sure to stick around until the very end to hear a special message from me. Enjoy. All right. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and how you got into real estate investing. Sounds good. My name is Haim Maman Palman, and I got into real estate investing in 2011. I just wanted better lifestyle. I was working a nine to five job and I needed to make a change. And I found out about real estate. And this is what drove me to invest in real estate, then to wholesale and now primarily fix and flip. So what were you doing first when you started to get into real estate investing? So I was in the physical security. I was the, the, the director of security of the Jewish Community Center uh, in San Francisco. Uh, and that's my background, security. So I was in, um, uh, not in corporate, it was kind of non-profit, uh, but primarily my profession was in uh, security. Mm-hmm. And then when you started working uh, as an investor, what was the first thing you started doing? So I... I realized that I can't do this nine to five job for 20 more years. So um, I start to read and listen to podcasts and come across again, reach that, poor that, like again, most of us real estate investors and, and realize that I need to buy assets uh, that will generate passive income. And, and that was the beginning of my real estate investing. I had a good nine to five job, W2. So I started to buy rentals. Uh, and after buying my first, second, third, fourth, I, I realized that I need 30 more <laughs> rentals in order to quit my nine to five job and get to freedom. And then I shift my model and, and start to do virtual wholesaling. And if you want to talk about it again, we can, but that's kind of the beginning of my real estate investment career. Sure. Let's talk about virtual wholesaling. How did you even get started and what were you doing for that? I purchased my first two rentals in California with 20% down, getting conventional financing, and then I ran out of money. I didn't have more money to put for 20% down. So I had to go and look for other cash flow market that would generate similar cash flow, just lower value property. 
uh, value. So I come across Memphis and start to buy rentals in Memphis, but still ran out of money, didn't have more money even to buy rentals in Memphis. And then I come across virtual wholesaling. Uh, I was too scared investing in the Bay Area when the median price was like $1.5 million. And I didn't want to make like $1 million cash offers because I didn't have, and I didn't have the mindset uh, to do that. So I said, you know what? I know turnkey companies because that uh, will be my buyers. I know real estate agents because I network with agents and I know property managers. So I had all the right team members to start to do virtual wholesaling and I decided to go to virtual wholesaling because that will allow me to make $5,000, $10,000 per deal. And that would be an easier route to quit my job, my nine to five job, because if I can make five to $10,000, for me, it was life changing. It's basically replaced my nine to five job and I can quit my job. And that was my number one goal back then to quit my nine to five job. And so how long were you doing it before you were able to quit your nine to five job? My first virtual wholesale deal was in August 8th. 2013. Uh, I remember it vividly because it was my first deal. So I was doing it while working nine to five job for two years. So I had my nine, my nine to five job and on the side gig, I had the virtual wholesale business. So by the end of year one, I was making more money virtually wholesaling than my nine to five job, but I couldn't quit my job because mentally uh, I couldn't. Again, I was scared. I was raised by two employees. My, even though my parents live in Israel, thousands of miles away, they were still in my head uh, telling me how irresponsible it will be to quit a great job with good benefits and having two kids. It will be a very irresponsible thing to do. So it took me another year to work on my mindset before I was ready to break the chains and, and set free even though financially I was able to do that um, a year uh, earlier. So can you talk about virtual wholesaling? Like how are you finding those deals and how did you know who you could sell them to right away? So my model was initially, again, right now it's again, it's not as effective, but I, in the first two years, 95% of my deals were on MLS deals. So I basically was making a lot of offers on, on deals on the MLS. I had two virtual assistants and basically blasting offers, like 200 offers a week uh, sometimes. And it was a numbers game. So I was just giving them a formula. They had to figure out the after repair value. They guesstimated their repairs minus my fee. And they were just blasting an offer via email with attaching a proof of funds letter, a bank statement that showed that I can close. And for every... Maybe 50 offers, I was, again, getting one deal initially. Um, then, again, it took it was much harder. It took maybe 100 and then 200, and then I had to switch model. But the first two years, it was zero marketing budget. It basically was hustle budget, and I was just leveraging virtual assistant to generate these leads for me. And then I shifted and started to invest in uh, direct mail. Direct mail was the second biggest marketing campaigns that helped me generate deals. But then again, it was networking and co-wholesaling and, and things like that. So then at some point, you decided to switch out of virtual wholesaling and into investing here in the Bay Area. Can you talk about why you decided to make that shift? Yes. So again, there's an, a, a phase before that. So after I was, again, had the courage to quit my nine to five job, I went all in. So, and, and I started to scale. 
because this is what all the people in my network were doing. They, they start to hire, and that's what I did because I thought that that's the, the best way to get to the million-dollar income level is by start to scale and hire. So I hired the lead manager, and I hired two virtual assistants, and then I hired an acquisition guy, and then I decided to go to a second market and then to a third market, and then I, I had, again, nice flow of deals, so I had to hire a disposition person, and I scaled, and I had at one point like seven people in my team. I implemented the traction model that a lot of investors keep pushing, so I was doing Monday uh, Monday morning meetings, I was tracking KPI, and I thought, I again, I'm, I'm great, you know, I'm just doing like five to seven deals. And then there was a moment, another aha moment that I found myself in, in Santorini, Greece, uh, traveling with my family and finding myself dealing with the drama of running a team of people that, again, uh, not, don't show up, don't hit their KPI. I need to fire. I need to hire. I need to train. And it just was a disconnect. There was no alignment between my, my goals and my core values and the business model that I was running. And I decided this, I didn't sign up for that. I want to travel with my family, but I wasn't present. I was just dealing with my team and it just didn't work for me. So I decided, you know what? I have to shift the model. This is not the good, a good model for me. So I, I gave everybody two weeks notice after I got back from my vacation. And I decided in, instead of uh, having a high volume, low spread model, uh, I need to shift to low volume, big spread model and there is no better market in the U.S., I think, to do it than in the Bay Area. And that was kind of the, the switch of starting to, to do deals in the Bay Area and, and stop and shut down the virtual wholesale model. Yeah, so even though it was extremely successful and profitable, it was just too time-consuming and wasn't in align with your goals. Yes, I did not enjoy it. Money was great. I was, again, making a nice living, but I just did not enjoy running a team. Again, there was a lot of moving pieces. And it was more or less the same efforts to get a six-figure deal in the Bay Area to a $5,000 in Memphis and without paying any commission. So again, I don't have any team members. I have a partner now. Most of the deals is with partners. So we both have the same vested interest. Nobody gets only a percentage of the deal. And for me, it was just a better fit because my goal is always to find a way how can I make more by working less so I can play more. That's kind of my principles and the guiding principles. And it was best, a better fit for me to do it in the Bay Area. And what do you think your like, max volume was at your peak? How, much, how many deals were you guys doing back then? Seven deals a month. So again, there's a lot of moving pieces, you know, to make sure that we, we open escrow and title is clear and we're pushing the deals to our buyers. And once the buyers comes in, so there's the paperwork and making sure that everything is closed on time. It just was, again, it's, it wasn't impossible. And I have a lot of friends that set up this business and run a very profitable and successful business model. It just wasn't the right model for me. Maybe this is something that I want to kind of drive the message home. Make sure that the, the, the strategy and the model that you select, there is alignment with your goals and your core values. So that's something that I wanted to, to do and share. Yep. So what are you doing now? So now I do primarily fix and flip in San Francisco. So we just started our project this year, and we're usually doing one or two at a time. The beginning of the year, and last year it was all the Bay Area. So I was doing deals in Oakland and Daly City, and, and I was looking at deals even in the South Bay. And this year I decided, you know what, it just, 
there's a much better make more sense to just focus in San Francisco. I live in San Francisco. My partner lives in San Francisco. We know this market very well, and we feel it's the safest market if, again, during the shift to be in San Francisco or not in the suburb. And we just have a very unique model right now. And right now, it's only fix and flip in San Francisco. Uh, we look at deal when we, we can do wholesale, basically close on the deal and sell it on the MLS a few weeks later. But again, primarily, that's my model right now. Yeah, it's really good because I'm from the South Bay and I get deals for SF properties and I, for the most part, turn them down because I don't know SF. SF, there's so many different pockets. So where are you getting your source of leads now? 90% it's networking with real estate agents and kind of uh, leveraging their network because what happens, again, 95% of the population, when they need to sell a property, they will go to a real estate agent, not to us. And a lot of times, agents don't want to sell an ugly property or a property that is not presentable, or at least especially in the high-end value when the median price for us is 1.5. Agents usually like to have the prestige of selling a beautiful, fully renovated home, and they take pride in their listings. So when they come across a a not presentable lead, sometimes they prefer just to sell it off market to their network or to investors, just will take it off their plate and they will get a quick commission and they will move on. So that's kind of what we try to target this niche. And also before they bring it to the market, uh, this type of listing, they will shop it within their network of agent before it goes to the market. So we're trying to kind of uh, reach out to as many agents as possible to make sure that they can think they will think about us when something like that come to their desk. So that's what's been primarily the last four or five deals came from agents off market or pocket listing. And even one was from the MLS, believe it or not. And are you cold calling these agents to get them to know you guys or how are you guys reaching out? For me, it's all about positioning. I don't like to cold call because when I cold call somebody, I'm, I come across as the person who needs something. And I don't like to be in this position. So there's a lot of psychology. So what I do, I usually go to open houses or to broker stores on Tuesday. For example, last Tuesday, we just went to a fixer-upper lead that was on the market. And we just went to check out the property and to network with the agent. So the goal was to not to get the property. It was to get to know the agent and tell them what we do and to invite them to our project to see what we do, and then leverage our, again, just position ourselves as the expert. And that's exactly what we did. The agent reached out to us, we reached out to them, we scheduled an appointment today, they came today to our project. And now when they come to our project, we are now positioned as the expert. We are the real deal, we are the developers, they can come and see that we are actual players. We tell them what we do, we tell them what we need, and we see if they can go to work and prove their self to be able to work with us. Yeah, that's really smart because if you just cold call, you come off as, you know, one of the dozen of people who called on the same day and they don't know who you are. They don't even know if you're a legitimate person or just someone who just came out of the seminar. So, yeah, so I always try to position myself as the expert and I'm the price. I can add it to, again, and obviously I, I show them how I can add a lot of value to them. So it's always trying to add value to see the potential of them making a lot of money if they decide to work with me or if they bring me an off-market deal, they will get the quickest commission check that they've ever seen in their life. And if it's a great deal, they have the potential of getting the listing after I remodel it and they can sell the property that was $700,000 for $1.3 million. And I basically show them the potential of getting potentially double end, double the commission on the acquisition side, plus 
a half of the commission on the back end for a much higher value property. That's cool. So you don't even promise them that guaranteed listing after you guys are done selling the property or done fixing the property. Sometimes I will. Again, it really depends. I will tell them again, I, uh, it's, I will definitely seriously consider it if you can show me that you can get me top dollar for my property. So again, it's about positioning. So sometimes I will say again, a lot of time, that's what we've done with people who brought us deals. And, and if you definitely have the capacity and if you'll be willing to, to sell it for top dollars, we definitely consider. Got it. And what do you do in terms of follow-up? With who? With the agents. Do you guys have them on like a mailer or add them on Facebook? Or what do you do? I would just say reach out to them on LinkedIn, establish a connection because I put a lot of things on LinkedIn and on my Facebook just to position myself that they can see that we have projects going on. So I will show them renovation or we just acquired a property or we went uh, under contract or new properties coming on the market. So they, the people that check out my, my LinkedIn or my Facebook page, they see that I'm a player. So I'm not just somebody out of the seminar who purchased a course. I'm an actual buyer. That's what I want them to see. And anybody who check out my profile, I want them to see that I'm, I'm a real estate investor. I'm real. And then I would just say every two weeks, maybe every month, I would just send them a text or call them and just say again, what's going on? Just checking in, see if you have anything for me. Uh, would love to show you our project and the progress of the project if they are serious. So this is kind of recruit more and more agents. And after maybe three to six months, you have maybe 10 to 15 agents looking for deals for you. That's true. Are you doing any direct mail plays right now or is it only agent-based relationships? Right now, it's only agents because really I'm, I don't want to build a machine. I'm good with just a handful of leads every week and I buy from wholesalers too. So again, I'm going to contract tomorrow, I hope, for a lead that came for me from wholesaler. I don't mind paying to a wholesaler. The deal that we're working right now came from a wholesaler. So I don't mind pay wholesalers. Uh, I paid $50,000 wholesale fee to somebody because it was a good deal. So I don't care as long as the, the numbers work. And if I don't need to run a lead generation machine, I prefer not to do that. Mm -hmm. What is your buying criteria for your properties? Right now, again, we're looking only for entry-level type neighborhoods. Um, we like to find a way to add value within the envelope. So we buy a lot of time like two-bedroom, one-bath, and we're converting it to three-bedroom, two-bath by adding a full bathroom and a full bedroom, a master suite in the lower level in the garage area. So a lot of people will kind of comp the property as a 2-1, but we're looking at the property from the lens of 3-2. So sometimes we'll be able to pay more and still be profitable. So we like entry-level homes. So it's usually purchase price is under a million or around a million dollar. And the exit price should be up to maybe $1.7 million. So we don't go after the top neighborhood in San Francisco. We don't go after the Noe Valley, the Mission. We're kind of like tier two or three as far as neighborhood in San Francisco. Well, so for people who aren't familiar with San Francisco, like myself, what neighborhoods would those be? So it would be like Ingleside Heights. It would be like Portola, Bayview, like areas that not considered the best neighborhood in San Francisco, but it's more affordable for somebody who works in tech and making $200,000 a year. They can't afford the $2.5 million in, in Noe Valley or in the Mission, and they're probably renting in these neighborhoods and they have the money to buy a property in San Francisco. So that's our target audience. 
they want to stay in San Francisco, but they can't afford living in the best neighborhood in San Francisco. So we basically give them the same product, just in an entry-level neighborhood. So it will have a feel of a Noi value, a Noi Valley home, which is kind of the, the top neighborhood in San Francisco, but it will not be in, the, in that neighborhood. It's not a cheap remodel. It feels like a $2 million home in a $1.5 million neighborhood. That makes sense. Yeah, makes sense. So when you purchase a property for $1 million, it's currently a 2-1 with maybe a garage in the basement. Um, how big is the square foot? Let me give you again an, an example of a deal that we're working on, on right now. So the purchase price was $760,000. It was a two-bedroom, one-bath. Probably going to be a $250,000 remodel. And the exit price will be around one point six. So this is a great deal uh, for us because... A 2-1 ARV will probably will be like a 1.2, which also will be a good deal. But if we can, we're looking at how we can maximize the return on investment, how we can make the most amount of money. And if we can add a bedroom and a bathroom, that's what we're going to do. So the exit price will be about 1.6. So that's going to be a good deal. Yeah. So for this 2-1, um, originally, was it like 1,000 square foot home? So it was like around 900 square foot. It was two bed and one bath on the top floor. And we added like 450, almost 500 square foot in the lower level. So it will be like 1450, maybe just short of 1500 square foot home, three bedroom, two bath. So does that mean you're cannibalizing the existing garage space or are you guys adding more to the back? No, we just, we don't go outside the envelope. We're just basically taking space that was used as either a storage or a two-car garage, and we're just converting it to a bedroom or a bathroom. And in San Francisco, in San Francisco, there's a lot of unwarranted spaces that were added by the owners without a permit. And it's usually, again, it's just not, it's not legal space. It wasn't built with a permit. So sometimes we just legalize this space and make it livable. And this is how we can, how we add value to property. And how complicated is that to to do this, this addition or this conversion of garage to living space? So if it's within the envelope, it's not too complicated because, again, you don't need neighborhood hearing. The, the permit process, again, it takes much shorter time uh, to process it. Again, it's usually between three to five days to get a permit approved. And once you go outside the envelope, basically adding more square footage outside uh, or adding another floor, that can just take much more time to review by the planning department and it's just it's we like to be in and out of the project in in three to four months from start of finish and so you mentioned a 250k remodel and to be honest that sounds like a lot of money like most of my remodels here in the south bay are maybe a hundred thousand dollars and they're for like 1500 square foot homes so i was wondering if you can kind of break down where the costs are for the kind of remodel so it's not cheap remodels so it's high-end remodels because we're targeting people that have the income to buy and they just want a cool house. So it's not like a suburb. So in San Francisco, there is, again, I want to have a cool house. It's usually young tech a couple that want to have the, the island, want to have the tall ceiling, want to have a view of the ocean. They want to have everything like feel like it's, it's Noi Valley. It feels like $3 million home, but it's only 1.5. So the finishes is, is more expensive. We definitely could get away with $120,000 remodel, but we're not going to get the 1.6. We're going to get only maybe 1.25 or 1.3. So for us, we are willing to spend more on the remodel to get better return on the exit price. 
So are you guys like removing walls, changing new electrical, maybe new plumbing? Yes. So right now it's just everything new. So it's new electrical, new plumbing. We're adding a deck, new windows, hardwood floors, not engineered floor. Again, we had to do a underpinning. So we need to dig in the garage area to make sure there's a, the ceiling heights is high. So that's why, again, I was late because we have a cement truck coming to pour the, the floors in the lower level of the garage. So it's it's bigger job. It's big job. So it's everything new, basically. It's almost a new house because that's what people want. They want the new roof. They want everything new. So again, we are willing to spend it up front to get a much higher exit price. And I guess because you're keeping the same foundation and you're probably keeping the same framing, you don't need to go through the crazy process of basically doing new construction. No, it's it's not a new construction. So we have all the bones are there. But again, it's, there's a lot of framing going on. Um, it's a full remodel. And I do it because my partner, uh, that's his expertise. He's an architect. And that was a strategic partnership because he managing the rehab. He had the experience managing a multi-million dollar renovations for another company. And now he's doing pretty much the same thing just as a, as a part owner, as a co-owner. So we have on, on cruise, he's acting as a GC. We don't hire a GC. We have subs working for us and it's very tightly managed. And actually, then it's a remodel that would have cost us probably closer to $400,000, $500,000 if we didn't have the, the subs working for us without the markup of a GC. That's right. Yeah. So how did you find your partner? So we found each other. So uh, I'm again, like now, I'm just maybe somebody will hear and, and, and be interested to, to partner. Uh, and this is how he found me. Uh, he let his network know that he's looking to change his role from being an architect and managing con- construction to developers. He wants to, to shift teams, to move to the other team that makes the money. And he found me. So one of my core friends introduced us to each other. And it was, again, we started to work together. I hired him as a as an architect for one of my projects, just so he can see how we look at the deal as an investor, because he was used to work on a deal and look at it from an architect point of view. So we did a couple of deals together as me as the investor, he's as, as an architect and was a good fit, same core value, same goals. And we decided that if we'll have another project together, we'll do it together. Uh, and the first deal we did together was very successful and, and we decided to do another, another one. So that's how we came together. How we, we found each other. Congratulations. Have there been any challenges so far in your investing career? Absolutely. You know, if you think that everything is it's, it's easy, I, I lost money on deals uh, and the shift to the Bay Area wasn't easy. Uh, it was successful overall, but not without failures and challenges. Uh, and I lost a lot of money on one of the deals because I didn't know what I didn't know. And, and I made a mistake. We made a mistake, me and my partner with Boozy. Uh, you probably know Jason Boozy. Uh, we did one deal that was great and we were a little uh, arrogant and ignorant and we bought another property and we, we lost a lot of money because we didn't know the market good enough. We didn't know this type, the, the specific type of property that we purchased and it was a painful lesson. So what are some things that people need to watch out for, especially in the SF market? Tenants. Tenants is a big tenant laws and uh, rent control. And this that looks great on paper, but has a tenant inside them. Again, it's not Memphis and it's not maybe in the South Bay. It's easier to evict. But again, all of California in, gen- in general right now, 
Uh, Oakland definitely there's challenges with uh, with tenant lows. So just to be very careful when you buy a property with a tenant, because again, and if you decide to evict someone, it needs to be with an attorney. Or if you're doing a buyout agreement, it needs to be again very carefully reviewed by an attorney that specializes in these laws. And because we didn't know these laws and we didn't know what's the impact of buying a property with tenants' rights uh, will mean. And again, as I mentioned, again we it was a, an expensive lesson for us, but we learned from it and we moved on. So you win and you lose, but again, as long as you have a winning record, uh, you're good. Yeah. And are you, so you're saying you're focusing mostly on single family flips. So you probably don't encounter these tenant issues anymore, right? Not necessarily. So the current property that we purchased, there was a tenant in the property and it was a creative deal that we had to front money to the seller so they can pay the tenant as part of the buyout agreement. So we are, again, it was a creative deal, but also with single family homes, if you decide to sell a property and we want to sell it vacant, you still need to go through a buyout agreement. Uh, and sometimes, again, it, it will mean that you need to pay $20,000, $40,000, and at times it can be up to $70,000 to have a tenant leave the property. Um, this is without an eviction. If you're going through eviction process, it just may take longer. But also with single family homes, there are tenants' rights that you should be aware of. Mm, yeah, I thought... Uh... I thought rent control is only for multifamily complexes. Like that's, that's the case in San Jose. But I guess in SF, it's every single unit, huh? Again, it's, they don't have the same exact rights. But if you want somebody to leave the property so you can sell it, you need to have a buyout agreement. It's not like eviction laws because they can drag it out and, and make it harder for you. Again, you can definitely sell the property with a tenant, but obviously it will lose value if you sell a property with a tenant. So again, it just there are challenges and you just need to be aware of the laws and the rules and work with an attorney. Again, for me, again, I was happy, happily paid like the $1,500 to attorney just to make sure I do it by the book and I don't do uh, something that can uh, bite me in the future if I don't do it right. Do it right. So how are you financing your deals? Uh, I'm using, again, hard money loans. I use Lending Home. I've used Conventus in the past and we use 90% of the purchase price and we fund our own rehab so just 90 percent of purchase that's what we do so far that's again that's the highest leverage that we found and and that's what we do it gotcha so do you have any advice for new investors who want to get in the game uh sure i have again it's it's primarily just to find somebody that it's experienced that's working in their market and they are in a position where you want to be and find a way to add value to them and if you are a beginner, to add value to them is not to ask them to pick up the brain or buy them coffee because it doesn't work. The way that you can add value to somebody who's experienced is to bring them a deal. Just go hustle, generate leads, speak with sellers, and bring them a deal. Once they have a deal, then you can add value to them, and they will be willing to, to show you how it's done, maybe to go with you to the appointment, maybe to show you the paperwork, maybe to show you how you to analyze a deal and take you under their wing. But you still need to hustle. You need to grind. You need to pull lists. You need to cold call. You need to uh, skip trace. You need to uh, network with agents and do whatever it takes to bring this deal. And only then reach out to a potential mentor to work with you and add value to you. So that will be, again, if you want to get in the game, especially in San Francisco and the Bay Area where the property value uh, is higher, 
So the entry point is more, it's scarier, right? Because nobody wants to make a mistake on a $1.5 million purchase. I lost $250,000 on a deal, uh, me together with a partner. And that could have been devastating to me if I was in the beginning of my career. It could have been, again, it could have wiped me out. And luckily today, I'm in a position that it's still very painful, but it's not devastating. Again, I can, again, I want to do it one time. I don't want to do it again. Again, you don't want to be in a position that your first deal, you're losing a lot of money. So that's why, again, having somebody on your wing or working with or kind of uh, guiding you, it's uh, invaluable. Yeah, I know there's a lot of people out there who offer like, I don't know, 10% of equity position if you just bring them the deal. Obviously, they're doing all the work, they're putting all the risks, so they get 90% of it. And by bringing them the deal, you know, you get to uh, shadow them during the whole process too. So that could be a good way for most people to get started with no money down. Yeah. And again, I don't know if 10%. I usually, again, usually these people want to get paid as soon as they bring the deal. Because by the time that you close and again, renovate and sell, it's going to be like four, five, six months. And usually they want to get paid now. And I actually prefer that they were going to get their, I don't know, 5000 10000 15000 $20,000, depending how good the deal is. I'm willing just to pay them up front. And then if they want to stick around, and reach out and connect and learn during the process. Again, obviously now we have a relationship because we, we've done a deal together and I don't care to do it. I actually prefer because this is how you develop a relationship. You tell them, and this is the next time where they bring another deal, they will come to you first. If you are, again, if you add value to them, they will just give you, again, a shot first before they shop it to the rest of the network. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's a weird if someone brings you a deal where it's already attached to another real estate agent? You mean like a wholesaler who says, oh, I have this deal, but you know, another agent is the listing agent for it? It depends. If it's, if, if it's off market and if he tied it on the contract and the agent gets paid by the seller, I don't see there's any issue with that. As long as he, he's under contract, he has the property under contract, or at least he said I have verbally, again, it's, it's my deal. It's a pocket listing. The agent promised me that if I can bring a buyer, it's going to pay me. Or if I will pay the wholesaler as long as I get the deal uh, and the agent gets paid by the seller uh, and the numbers work for everybody. So it's not weird at all. So actually, I've done it before because a lot of agents have these pocket listings that they are aware of and they want to find a buyer. And sometimes they find a buyer through another wholesaler that will connect them to the buyer. Mm-hmm. So definitely. I don't find it weird at all. And actually, most of the time, this is how I find my deals. It's through another wholesaler that bring me a deal from another agent. Got it. So what do you think is next for you? What's next for me? Mm-hmm. I'm just going to ride a wave when the market is still strong. And I would try to maximize and leverage, maybe to do maybe two more deals this year. And again, something that I haven't touched is that all the profit that I make, I push out, out of my bank account to buy rentals or private money loans because the end goal is to increase the cash flow every month that's the end goal and not to make six figure on a deal it's nice but what do you do with this six figure yeah you push it out make sure this uh, it can earn you 10 percent, 10 to 15 percent return on a, a rental or hard money loans so you increase your cash flow every month so now you can get to a position that you can take two months off you can travel and you don't need to worry whether the market goes down or not, because you still have cash flow coming in and you can live a lifestyle business and don't worry about your next flip. That's the goal. And where are you buying your rentals? 
out of state, so I don't buy in California, so I usually buy out of state. Or I do a private money loans to out of state investors that I know and trust and that they have a, a very good operation. That's that's pretty much it. So it's primarily you make cash flow on out of state and you make money and big checks in the Bay Area fixing and flipping. Do you have a specific uh, location that you prefer to buy rentals in? Right now I buy in Ohio, in Dayton, Ohio market, just because I have somebody that on the ground that I trust and know. And I like the, the small multi-unit, the four unit, the four to six units. So that's my focus right now, just acquiring as much as I can. Uh, rentals and to make sure again the cash flow cash flow is king not cash cash flow is king so as long as you you increase your cash flow every month that's my end goal i guess yep sounds good so if you can go back in time and give advice to your 25 year old self what, what do you think you would say yourself if i wouldn't go to school i spent seven or eight years going to school full-time while working a nine-to-five job to a job that i don't do anything with so I have a master's degree, but again, I don't do nothing with it. So I just invest the same amount of money that I invested my uh, higher education on education, on how to make money with real estate, how to make money online, um, how to be a better marketer, how to be a better salesperson, how to learn, again, marketing and sales strategy, because you can take these skills and implement them on almost every business. I can add value, I believe, to any business on how to do better marketing, uh, on positioning, how to negotiate better deals with the clients. And, and this would be the, the skills that I right now teaching my kids these skills because you can translate and make these skills applicable to almost anything in life. Yeah, I totally feel the same way. I mean, I went to school too, got a master's in a, for a profession I don't even work in. So it's kind of a shame. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, yeah, I prefer these skills. They're like way more transferable. Like anything you do now in real estate, you can transfer to any other business you decide to do in the future. Absolutely. And on, I will add online marketing too. I think online marketing, what you do, I'm sure again, it's, it's just positioning yourself as an expert in the field. You have a platform. You can connect with people that making an impact. So you make an impact and I'm sure you will find a way to leverage this platform because again, online marketing is also a great way if you don't want to go and work a nine to five job there's a ton of way on how to make money with online marketing uh, and sales informational products and, and things like that. Yeah, I was just at a conference in DC about a month ago and there's just a bunch of people doing the exact same thing. So it was really cool to see everybody with their online platforms and like all the, just, I don't know, the possibilities are out there. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, I don't know if everyone, but people in your network, again, you removed yourself from the, the crowd and as well as I did. From the nine to five mindset, right? Because you right now, you surround yourself with people that thinks like you. So you think that everybody do it. But the fact of the matter that maybe 1% or 2% of the population are have this uh, entrepreneurship mindset. Unfortunately, most people still raise to be employees to go to school and have a great job with benefits. And yeah, I'm just lucky. And thank you for the opportunity to connect with you because I always try to connect with people with the same mindset. And awesome of life. Yeah, it was a pleasure having you on the show today. So how can people get in contact with you? So the, the best way, again, I'm on, on Facebook, the virtual wholesaler guy, a Facebook page. People can see that, again, what I do, I provide value and add content there. That's my platform. And they can reach out to me, send me a message, especially if you're in the Bay Area. I want to get in the game in the San Francisco. Happy to connect with you and find a way to add value to each other. 
So that should be probably the best way to get a hold of me. Awesome. Well, Han, thanks so much for your tips today and looking forward to seeing you around later. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Sean, for having me. Cool. Take care. Here are some of the key takeaways from this episode. Even though Haim had a very successful business as a virtual wholesaler, he realized that it was holding him back from what he really wanted to do in life. By pivoting to investing in the Bay Area, he was able to make more profits per deal and was able to cut his overhead, giving him the life that he truly dreamed about. And instead of reaching out and cold calling other people, he positions himself as an expert and invites agents to his projects to show him that he's the real deal. He follows up through his social media presence by posting pictures and stories of his projects. I hope you enjoy this episode, and I want to make a very special thank you to you for listening to this show. I created this show about a year ago to help others learn from real estate investing experts and professionals with the hope that it could make a difference in your life. So if this podcast has helped you in any way, please do me a favor and leave a review for the show. It'll help me reach out to someone who needs to hear this message. Thanks again for listening. I'm looking forward to the next 100 episodes. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It'll take less than a second, and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at seanpanrealty at gmail.com. That's S-E-A-N-P-A-N-R-E-A-L-T-Y at gmail.com. Thanks, and have a great day.